These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Thematic discussion of chapter 30. Thematic discussion. Uh, literary analysis. It's one of the most terrifying moments of Steamheart. Yes. We don't know who will survive, and mm. the combination of framing, description, music, and other sound effects grips the audience by its collar. At first, it seems like more of the group will make it back than not, but Saitash is almost like its own character in this moment and trying to drive home the point that Jeremy has already brought us to in his narration. They have traversed beyond a threshold that they should not have done, and Saitash itself is punishing them for doing so. Oh, it's it's nightmarish, and it legitimately gets at a part of your soul deep down that makes you feel a little less safe in whatever environment you happen to be listening to and, you know, it's the best, honestly. I'm very here for that, even when I'll be listening to that on the walk home and then just looking at a plant life or any sort of mm. unknowable and untraceable sound in my periphery with a whole new pants-to-be-darkened anxiousness. Alex had a tall order with this because he had to try to get the homeworld of the Wendigo to live up to expectations and... I'd argue that it's successful, partly because it provides the insight that the Wendigo aren't really the native inhabitant of any world. We were scratching at this earlier. The Wendigo are just the byproduct of the occupants of one world stumbling into the middle of a horrific yet nevertheless natural process. And they either die swiftly and brutally or they walk out of there as something else. We know them better now, but even for all this sacrifice... All we have found out is that the catastrophe that the world is dealing with is wholly unprecedented, not just for this world, but likely for all worlds. It is a cosmic multiversal collision resulting in the worst, most protracted damage. And the source of it isn't someone human that you can level all of your hate and blame at. It's just a plant. There's no one to get revenge against, no enemy army to deduce are responsible for landing this threat in our backyard. It's at this point that we have to remember even the names we have for this creature are just ones that we found fitting terms. From our own mythology. Yeah, from our own mythology. It's not what they are, it's just what we see them as. Intriguingly, actually, when we think about the names used for these creatures... Some of the names, aside from Wendigo, like, say, Goblin, are hinting at something potentially outside the natural order, which is definitely mm-hmm. what the Wend- we now know for certain that the Wendigo are. But as is discussed in a later book in the New Century opus, the culture that the Wendigo name comes from does actually consider them part of nature and therefore not necessarily something as the natural order. It's just something that does actually exist and should therefore be respected. It's only quote-unquote Western civilized societies that consider the Wendigo a monster, the same as it thinks of the goblins as fae from another world, or vampires to be an undead predator that are inimical to life literally undead. This has a different feel to it, I would say, from that. The terms that we have concocted are suitable in that they are both, as you say, this is something fantastical and otherworldly because it is something outside of what we understand to be natural order, not just of our own world, but even of the source world. It is 
something that exists in between realities and therefore you can't really think of anything appropriate to call that other than something fantastical Mm -hmm. and yet it's something which we nevertheless have to ground and understand in the terms we can Mm -hmm. and that's what these chapters are about it's about understanding the unknowable nature of this thing while still deducing the physical grounded terms that resulted in its creation. We've been discussing Saitash for a while, and there are other topics to consider, so we decided to move on from here. But as a final capper for this topic, something occurred to me during our original Skype session. We're not going to get into it just yet, as Seth is going to take up a whole section in the following episode, but if indeed the Wendigo were a big cosmic accident then what does it mean that Seth considers the Wendigo his? Food for thought. Moving on. We've been in Saitash for a while. Like, can... Yeah, exactly. Let, please, let's, please. Let's, let's go through the wind door and get out of Saitash and maybe close that particular door. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one that we don't need to go back to. Like, ugh. That crossover episode was a mistake. <laughs> let, on the other hand, let's not go to Saitash. It is a... <laughs> Fucking dangerous place. (laughs) It hurts unexpectedly to have Jackson be taken from the group. If it had happened more quickly, like many of the others, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad. But once more, one of the voices of the handbook has been lost. Albeit more peacefully than the other brave soldiers lost to Saitash. I remembered being... Mad is maybe the wrong word, but, like, unhappy with him at one point. When he told his very necessary story about what his town did to its black citizens when he was a kid. And yet, even though there was all indication that he was trying to encourage people to not be racist, he still used the N-word as the opener to his story. Private Henry Jackson... Fort McHenry, Baltimore, Maryland, March 15th, 1878. I don't know why they thought it was the Nishigan. They never did us any harm, and I didn't honestly see good cause why they would do any other. But now, as he leaves Steamheart proper, I'm just sad. And for one of the few times almost hope that there is a place beyond where he'll meet Bessie Flynn and be at peace. He deserves peace. And James was able at least to give him some small measure of it at the end. There has to be a point of familiarity that we lose with this encounter. We still feel the awfulness of the scene when an entire team of soldiers is taken out one by one as the panic sets in. But losing a character who has narrated one of the stories of New Century, even a single isolated smaller story within an anthology like the Cartographer's Handbook, he's acted as one of the voices of this world. Losing that emphasizes the extent of what has been taken away with each death. Each of these men had a voice that will never speak out again or make a positive change again. And the world of this series feels diminished with that absence. They were good people Mm. that did their job and unfortunately died or were killed in the process of it. And we'll talk a little bit more about the greater depth of that once we discuss Mm. Jeremy's interview. But on the subject of Jackson... It's a rough scene. It's it really rough because, like, you know, you just sort of breathed a sigh of, you know, like you're coming up for air once you're out of Saitash. And it's almost like even when you have gotten beyond the borders of that world, you're seeing it lash out to, like, mm-hmm. sort of just take you know, one more life. Exactly. The way that Jackson, like, how it plays out, it's done in this balance between him, like, sort of. In some ways, he is able to come to terms with it because he says that, like, he just wants something to dull the pain of it. But it's not done with a sort of stoicness. 
he's saying to Butler when Butler is like suggesting like I'll make it quick I don't want it to be quick I want I want this pain to go away there's an earnest and harrowing desperation to that he's losing the parts of himself and he just needs to latch on to what he can know with certainty is that he just wants to take away and dull the pain of it and james is able to like help with that with the morphine and and with the rain as well the way i always visualize this scene and i felt it again here because you hear the rain but steamheart is meant to be close enough by that people can see this from the viewing windows i always thought of like whatever light is being emitted from Steamheart kind of just framing him like crouched down almost spotlit while all of the people are kind of keeping their distance around him as the rain is falling down it's a it's a powerful scene that it evokes Mm -hmm. there's plenty of movies that have somber moments in rain sometimes even being lit by headlights but there's a certain poetic synchronicity in that the subject of Back to the Future 2 recently came up on the Discord, reminding me of the ending of that movie. He's gone. The dog's gone. The rain's starting to pour down, right when it seems like Marty has lost Doc Brown. And then the car approaches. I say this because I know what a fan Alex is of those movies, so it's hard not to imagine this might also have been in his head, writing this scene. It makes me think about that one scene at the beginning of the Cartographer's Handbook where Daniel Floyd narrates the experience of someone feeling the change come over them. Mm. And what you were saying a moment ago about Henry Jackson wanting to die a man. Mm -hmm. Understandably, he doesn't want to have to experience what it was that many other people had to go through. But the way in which he asks for the morphine and not the bullet. Like, we don't necessarily know what it's like to be lethally shot and Mm. how quick it actually is. It seems like it might be, but... We can't ask the people that have died from a gunshot how much they feel before blissful oblivion comes, so to speak. Mm. And so, therefore, the request of having his pain taken away by the morphine, not just his pain, but to be given enough that he dies from it, Mm. and that the, the gunshot at the end is just frank being himself and making sure. I can definitely understand that Henry Jackson knew he was going to die and just wanted to decide how. Yeah. And given his service, should definitely have had that right. It's one more horrible casualty of everything that like we see about the world in Centrum and New Century and the reunified states as we know, beyond the borders of it, is all down to this world brushing up against somewhere else. They say at the start, okay, we're going to be in and out within an hour, but, like, it's difficult to pin down the time frame of this, but, like, it certainly doesn't feel like they were in there for that full hour. I think they knew what they needed to know and wanted to get out and couldn't. That's just what happens from this briefest of brushes against this place and this is the last pip of damage that it leaves Mm. us and unfortunately of the people we lose it's the one that we were the most invested in of the newcomers that Mm. like well i i would say we're probably more invested in frank and miguel surviving than we were in oh sure in terms of like the sort of like who we lose mm-hmm. i would say henry was like the person oh, yeah. that we lost that we were most invested in like to a some degree it's almost important that he does die because mm-hmm. otherwise it's just a 
bunch of people that have had no characterization at all or very yeah. little characterization die. So mm. there has to be a cost to it that we actually feel. You probably feel it more when it doesn't happen in the chapter that takes place inside mm. Tash, where yeah. everything is very like where we where we have to sit. With yeah. the fact that he's dying, yes. Yeah, exactly. In Saitash, things happen remarkably quickly. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you just hear, there's a cry somewhere, and mm -hmm. it's like, oh shit, that person's dead. It's all very frenetic, and everything happening all at once. Uh, once you're out of the horror of that, and you're processing it, that's where you start to process the damage, and seeing the like person that you care about most be lost when you're sitting in that space with him that's where you feel it most. Because I was curious, I uh, I went back to the audio drama of this chapter. It is definitely one of the quote-unquote longer chapters. The timestamp that I'm looking at includes credits, mm -hmm. um, but it's about 22 and three quarters minutes long for Through the Southern Door. And as far as whether or not they're actually in there for an hour, I'm pretty sure they're pretty close to an hour. Because at one point, Frank says, we've been here 30 minutes. We want to head back now because Abigail has orders to close the wind door after an hour, regardless mm. of whether they come through or not. Mm. So especially since they were having to travel slowly in order to avoid provoking the flora around them. It was probably pretty close to an hour. It was the best part of an hour. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Given how long the episode is, obviously it didn't take an hour to relate everything that happened in Saitash. And understandably, like, this was a sequence of events that was very likely written down in Jeremy's journal. Some of it during and some of it remembering after the fact and relating all of these details. So, of course, it feels like mm. it would take that amount of time because he is abbreviating for not necessarily narrative effect, but to relate only the important details of what happened rather than a blow by blow of this is what happened this minute. This is what happened the next minute, et cetera, et cetera. I would also say that the experience of listening to that episode, you're, you're so caught up in it that mm. you've lost track a little bit. The episode only finally releases you the minute the final shot has been fired. If Steamheart is this sort of grand odyssey that has a compilation of a number of genres throughout its entirety, this is the encapsulated Heart of Darkness episode. Sans, Kurtman, and all of that. It's The human element is gone. It's literally just going into having a descent into somewhere and just coming out of it and being like, Jesus, what the fuck was that? That's like what you undergo in this. And so it was always one of the chapters that stood out to me at the time since and on revisiting it. And it's definitely one that feels like if you were to count down the sort of number of chapters that make Steamheart what it is about, this one is like near the top. Literally, this is one of the key places it goes to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a little palate cleanser, I thought I would display Sarah's work. Oh, this is very pretty. Yeah, little Lego fonts. And mm -hmm. these are much more uh, palatable, mm -hmm. not just because they are made of Lego, but pictures shall be taken. And yeah, this is, they interlock these little sort of boxes of each of them. What, what are they described as? That succulents these are a group of succulents mm -hmm. there are nine of them in total and they'll like fit together like this lego is therapeutic and gardening is therapeutic so when you put them together it becomes super therapeutic <laughs> our conversation ended up getting away from one of my original points which i feel the need to address before we move on the old adage is to not speak ill of the dead immediately after they passed, and that's a custom that's being challenged in the modern era, particularly if the person in question was especially noxious to a lot of people. In a lot of other cases, it's more complicated, in that there were, say, a lot of people that didn't have anything personally against Queen Elizabeth, but did have an issue with the monarchy itself. 
To hold a grudge against Henry Jackson merely for using the N-word, especially when he is a fictional character, seems trivial in comparison. And regardless, at the end of the day, actions truly do speak louder than words. He gave his life not just to the RSA, but also to protect Team Steam. That outweighs any poor choice of words. So I reiterate my earlier comments that his passing is as felt as that of Lawton Sadler and those other voices of the cartographer's handbook now lost to us. More seriously, he is a harbinger of further losses to come. Side note, looking up chapter 30 through the southern door, the credits include Bateman, Perron, and Yang, as in three of the soldiers, or performed by Matthew Siebert, Teddy Bredemeyer, and Blaine Stewart. The show notes also say that uh, these three individuals also provided screams. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So let's move on to the next point of tension, shall we? Yeah, exactly. Chapter 31 is called Suspicions. We can go on together. We're suspicious. Exactly. Okay. I'm sorry. It is called Just Suspicion. We get to this scene, extended scene, really, mm-hmm. where James and Abigail are having this conversation. And as I'm re-experiencing this, the, the notes that I wrote were, James decides to open his mouth, and part of me is just mad at him. Mm. Of course, James was going to figure out the truth regarding Frank and Annie. He's this world's version of Sherlock Holmes. He was going to put pieces together. He was going to notice details, and he was Mm -hmm. going to come to conclusions. Yeah. But I think to myself as I listen to this conversation, what purpose did it serve to tell Abigail? He knows Abby better than anyone. He had to know she would react badly to this news, or at least she would react more emotionally than James himself does. But having thought about it, I sort of understand, at least from my perspective, I know that you have a different take on the situation. He did it in order to save Abby's life Mm. because Abby hadn't considered that just being herself might result in Annie shooting her. And James, James was trying to prevent that outcome by making Abigail aware of it. Nevertheless, this encounter leaves us with a bad taste in the mouth especially when things start going to shit in the very next chapter, because Mm -hmm. we know there is going to be problems going forward. Like, well, well, we already know because we know what happens next, but even in a world where we were reading this chapter for the first time, we can look at everything that's come before and know there's going to be consequences. You raise a very good point that like this is being done by James preemptively mm. to try to prevent a scenario in which Abigail's gonna Abigail and you, you could even say that he is trying to prevent disaster. As Fra would say. Yes. That's <laughs> that's pretty much it. That's what he is trying to do here because I think for James, in his mind, the best way to prevent disaster, as uh, you and Harau say, is to get everyone informed. Mm -hmm. In his mind, that is the best way to kind of get people on the same page by literally presenting them with the same set of details. Mm -hmm. My response to it, as uh, you mentioned, was like focusing on different aspects to it. And My response to this conversation between James and Abigail is one of mixed emotions, because on the one hand, seeing them actually engage in a full discussion here and sharing notes after things have been tense and non-communicative for so long, you know, it is a small reassurance. It it does remind us of the way they talk to each other in order to figure things out back in secret rooms. Right, exactly. And 
you know, that's something we haven't seen for a while, but with everything that's been going on, the flicker of connection that we saw between them when they remembered braving the doctor's bottle, when they were confronted with the lemonade and it, it helps them to remember who they were and who they have been to one another. Remember who you are. It's soothing a, relief to see. It, exactly. It was a soothing relief to see, but what James is presenting here mixes in all sorts of new division and mistrust that could develop through the group as a result of this information coming forward. So, yeah, it feels like a conversation that simultaneously, you know, probably ought to have been had. And yet when you consider certain quite important factors, your head is screaming as you start to see the dire cogs that are being put in place and are beginning to put things in motion that can't be undone. As for the why or James sharing this information with Abigail, once again, I'm, you know, I'm hazarding guesses without claiming any of this as concrete certainty. Maybe James felt similarly to what I've already laid out, that something had been plaguing him for a while now, and he's had no one to talk with about this. Upon seeing new evidence to support his hypothesis and feeling that the gap between him and Abigail has closed somewhat, He's seizing his chance while he still has it to talk this through with the only other member of the group that he could collaborate with this and who could feel sympathetic towards this. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right that talking about this with anybody else could have other unintended consequences. So Mm. he discusses it with the person that it directly relates to. As we've discussed many times before, he can do all the thinking in his own head, and he often does. But maybe just like everybody else, he needs someone to externalize it with Mm. before he can feel like he's on solid footing as to his own conclusions. Yeah, he has, like, like any of us, he has to talk through these things as a way of actually processing the information. Like, it's not just, just like Sherlock needed Watson. Yeah, exactly. And James is often categorized as the logical Sherlock or Spock member of the group. But as with Spock, there is plenty to pick up on that shows that he has just as much going on under the hood as the rest of us, emotionally speaking. If he's been panicked by this implication after everything with Saitash, I think he will want to cling to and pin down any stability that he can develop with his oldest companion and establish a clearer understanding of where they stand with their officers slash bodyguards, as well as the institution they are being swept up into. Things are uncertain enough with other worlds, but James can't help but notice things. This is established. It is something that he can't switch off, that he does pick up on what is going on around him and certain truths as we were speaking about with like the solarians earlier mm-hmm. there are things that other people would rather not sort of put out there but he can't help but pick up on them and deduce those truths for himself all of a sudden i want to bring back that scene from elementary mm. which i know i used at one point before i can't remember the circumstances don't worry i don't think we have a jar set up for it yeah I don't even, God, I don't even know what a jar for elementary would be. I'm going to have to think about that and put it into the edit. I think the one that I came up with is going to be another bee in the hive, thanks to this version of Sherlock having a specific fascination with bees. Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! No, he's specifically relating that taking in all of this sensory data and the conclusions that he comes to as a result of it, it hurts him. I do them because it would hurt too much not to. Because you're a good person. It hurts, Agatha. All of this. Everything I see. Everything I hear, touch, smell. The conclusions that I'm able to draw. The things that are revealed to me. The ugliness. My work focuses me. It helps. You say that I'm using my gifts. I say I'm just treating them. It has its costs. What does? 
learning to see the puzzle in everything. They're everywhere. Once you start looking, it's impossible to stop. It just so happens that people and all the deceits and delusions that inform everything they do tend to be the most fascinating puzzles of them all. Of course, they don't always appreciate being seen as such. Seems like a lonely way to live. As I said, has its costs. Mm. So I can definitely see potentially that element with James as well. You know, with everything that has happened with, like, learning what they have about Saitash, things are so uncertain with that. But they're also, like, uncertain with everything going on with the reunified states and its government. Mm -hmm. And Abigail is able to follow his logic and they aren't confronting things openly with Annie and Butler just yet and sort of flying in the face of it. They are abiding, at least for now. Mm. And, you know, let's just hope that nothing dramatic happens soon that could potentially put this tightrope walk of tension at risk and, you know, have our heroes fall into another reality that they can't climb back out of. Faint hope. Mm. Honestly, under the circumstances, Abigail kind of manages a very adult response to all of this. Because we can imagine a version of her that would fly off the handle. Abigail is at least able to take all of the experiences that she's had and decide, as you say, not to have a confrontation with anybody just now. To actually sit with it and try to figure out what they're both going to do next. Because it's not just about her, it's about both of them. And mm -hmm. Abigail is able to be mature enough about it to take all of that on board and, mm. like, not respond immediately, to not confront the situation head-on or fist first. We're going to be discussing a particular emphasis of Abigail's developing maturation when it comes mm. to, like, handling emotional, interpersonal minefields, as it were. Yeah. And this is one moment where you can feel like it's not that it's necessarily gone away and it's not that you think that this is something that she won't draw out on and say something about. It's just that she is not going to do it yet. It's like simultaneously you're like kind of relieved that she's sharing that level of restraint, but you're also a bit apprehensive of, is this being done because Abigail has a long-term intention of, not following up on this and trying to maintain the peace? Or is this something that she is actually holding back on so that she can bring it out to do the maximum damage? We are given no other choice but to wait and see. I don't think that Abigail is looking to do maximum damage here because it's, it's Annie. Yeah. Because it's Frank. And she mm. feels betrayed by them, but she doesn't actually want to hurt them. This no. isn't the circumstance where Abigail was the person bucking against Annie's leadership all the way back at the beginning of Secret Rooms. No. Now they're friends, mm. and that puts an entirely different spin on all of this. By maximum damage, what I mean is essentially, like, in order to emphasize and make the point as intensely as possible, like, not necessarily to do long-term damage to Annie. Maybe, maybe not. But is this going to be an issue that she manages to navigate, de-emphasize, and move forward with? Or is this something that is going to come out perhaps even more explosively than if she had had a measured conversation about it here and now? We'll see. Well, we're definitely going to find out, aren't we? I don't know about you, but I've already read the chapter where the consequences of this conversation come to flower. No, I didn't choose the word flower there as a Saitash reference, because if I had, I would have done it less clumsily. And once more, I'm taken to ponder how the death of the Arlingtons played into what Abigail chose to do after the conversation with James. It's bad enough, perhaps, to feel betrayed by a friend, but to feel betrayed by someone you're supposed to trust and look up to like Thomas? If he was still alive, 
I have to wonder if Abby would have kept this a secret till they got back to D.C. She may not want to hurt Annie, but I can see where she might have wanted to hurt Thomas once upon a time. Of course, there's no way to punish the dead. And even if you could, should you? Let's put a pin in that for now. Yep. And uh, move on to the next part of Chapter 31, Raven's Interview of Jeremy. While this is not obviously the end of the journey as a whole, one could argue that this interview is the end of Jeremy's arc in Steamheart. Mm. The interview itself is very official, also very human, very practical. Jeremy is very clearly frustrated with the chaos of his experience in Saitash. But given what we know of Jeremy himself, there is so much more behind that assertion that he could have told the group to leave sooner. Mm. He feels like he bears the guilt alone of all of those people that died. His willingness to want to stay just to keep exploring this world. A world that honestly would likely have killed him too. Without maybe, a doubt. But maybe he, that didn't matter to him. He was unwilling to... He was unwilling in this moment to turn back right before things started really going to shit again. He was mm-hmm. on the verge of saying, just leave me here. And it's like this was finding out what was actually beyond that southern door. That was a remit given to him by the Arlington. So it was always going to happen. But it doesn't change the fact that Jeremy associates this encounter with his own values. He makes it personal. Mm. So when he talks about success with a price to Raven, he doesn't merely mean in lives lost. He Mm. himself has paid is paying, will pay. He Mm. is paid in innocence and optimism, and this will very likely echo forward into any decisions he makes from here. A recurring trait or characteristic of the protagonists of New Century... Here Tubby's voice briefly cut out, but I was able to piece together what he said... His suggestion in Jeremy and Others was the presence of what he refers to as the Peter Parker disposition, and that they will take on a disproportionate level of responsibility for the bad things that happen around them. They will view things that they were present for as something they could have done something about. And the external audience... More often than not, you will actually find this a point that you disagree with them. You even would kind of contest this to the point where you think that they could be more happy and at peace if they could actually come to terms with the fact that this is something that they don't have to accept responsibility for. Mm. But part of what makes them well-meaning and they are active about making the world a better place is that they accept too much responsibility. It's mm. a recurring feature that the people who deal the most harm are the ones that should feel the most guilt, but feel the least of it. Whereas the people who are trying to make the biggest difference are the ones who feel the most guilt over the smallest mm. thing. And this is not a small thing, but it is nevertheless something we see of Jeremy and other instances of characters in New Century where they will see a set of circumstances as something that they could have done something about. And rather like, say, Miguel regretting killing the lion on deck, even though it was necessary to help free the enslaved cats in the basement. Below deck, ships don't have basements, but moving swiftly along. And Abigail and James concluding that what happened to Lucy will never not be their fault. This is a fairly intriguing association Toby is making, but I'd argue that there is an additional component. 
There is a difference in the way that Steve Rogers takes on responsibility and the way Peter Parker takes on responsibility. Steve does things because he feels he can't do nothing. He is acting from a fundamental center of the idea that as a person, he has a responsibility to do something good with that life. But Jeremy and Peter don't simply feel guilty that they could have done something and didn't. They feel guilty because they associate the thoughts that they had at the time as being unworthy. Peter didn't just let the thief get away. He was also arrogant and self-centered. Jeremy didn't make the group stay longer, but he did argue that they should, that his desire to know more was more important. Therefore, he associates that mindset with the tragedy. James and Abigail are a little different, in that they didn't just think, they also acted. And in truth, they also acted selflessly, wanting to help Lucy achieve what she wanted. But as kids, they also associate their complicated, turbulent feelings with the decision to help her, and therefore they punish themselves even more for their actions. You can make salient points and arguments about that, but it wasn't just down to their choices. It was also Lucy's choice as well, and that is something that they could not control. This <laughs> this is why Thomas Arlington fears chaos. Yeah, and like talk about like taking so much responsibility. Like he is the person who is the extreme of this, that he has accepted all of the responsibility. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. No, God, I love these conversations. It's really good, isn't it? Like, it's Because <laughs> like, that's the thing that unifies these characters, not just grief mm. and processing that. It's how they are living their lives and the responsibility that they are navigating mm -hmm. and how it's something that is a double-edged sword, that it is it drives them mm -hmm. to accomplish and enact change, mm -hmm. but it is also the thing that will collapse them from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And what Jeremy is discussing here in response to the responsibility he takes over the death of these men, uh, these soldiers, is in many ways a pragmatic, reasoned-out response to a traumatic expedition. And it indicates that he is trying to exercise some form of control and take responsibility, as we've gone over, in the face of that terrible cost. He wants to prevent further unnecessary casualties, and he wants to ensure that the maximum value is extracted from the deaths that he fears were senseless and unnecessary here. Do you feel guilty for their deaths? I'm never going to forget their names. Peron, Yang... Bateman, Murphy, Basra, Shapiro, and Sergeant Jackson. All his life and throughout this book, we have seen Jeremy come to the brink of crossing over into the world beyond the horizon, but he has always stopped himself or heeded the advice or decisions of others before any cost would have to be paid. But now he has finally crossed over the horizon and he has finally had to confront the reality of facing the deaths that he has always driven to prevent now coming about as a result of something that he wanted. That's not to say that he is responsible or that his specific decisions and actions led to the deaths that was the outcome of it. They're not the fault of his actions on or before the mission. But these men died exploring an unfamiliar world, and that is something that Jeremy wanted. He wanted it so bad that he even felt the dizzying impulse to stay in a world that he knew could kill him and others, that he, for a moment, wanted to leave the world that Donald remained in. Donald asked that he come back to him, mm. and for a moment, he wanted something else and that feeling is something he will always remember coming over him in the heat of the moment and i expect it will haunt him retreating to the security of langley and going over this information with the man he loves has a lot of practical value but it also strikes me as jeremy wanting to withdraw and recover 
and potentially question whether he ever wants to come back to this place again. Whether it's Saitash or any other world, it will always be the same place for Jeremy, beyond the rainbow. And he knows how easily he might slip even further beyond forever and harm who knows how many other people in the process. Okay, I got a lot of response to what you just said. Um, mm. Let me try and do it in an accurate order. Bringing up Donald and his promise to Donald. That's an armor-piercing observation there that I had not considered. You're absolutely right, and it's actually going to dovetail really well with the final moment of this chapter. Uh, to use words that exist within the text of Steamheart itself... Jeremy has discovered who he is now that he's gotten what he wants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, God, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. And um, the idea that that scares him, that that moment was on the verge of making him go back onto a promise to the man that he loves, that, yeah, that definitely makes this part of the story really stick out and mm. I don't know I um I'm hoping that maybe some future story of Alex's might explore that because mm. to be perfectly honest Jeremy has always been a bit of a side character and we don't know if he is going to actually make it in many capacities this would be the place we would expect Jeremy to die. Like, if he was to die, it would be chasing that rainbow. So, narratively, we would expect it to be here, but we have no guarantees. All I will say, as the end of this conversation, we must remember and think about what Jeremy is going through here and has gone through and might have to face should he return to Langley is those opening words, all of us would gain something, and all of us would lose something. And not all of us would come back. As an addendum, dying at the end of a character arc is something you want to handle very carefully. I remember seeing at least one video recently on the second season of Genlock, where it was done very ham-fistedly. I don't feel bad about spoiling that, because apparently the second season was a shit show. don't watch it. But by the same token, if you've done your homework and read through chapter 32, you've already seen how Alex handles that idea himself. Jeremy is like, I've been banging this drum throughout all of Steamheart, but he has always been this hidden gem of a character in New Century. He is not the main character who is coming to this ensemble with as much full development and he is not the active arbiter of all action going forward into Steamheart. He is by his role an observer who is along for the ride. Like that is kind of quite literally what he is there to be. Mm. The way that we are able to extract a journey within that framework makes him one of the most unique perspectives to have on a narrative like this that I am infinitely thankful for. Mm-hmm. We come to the end of seemingly another arc here, in the final moments of chapter 31. Mm-hmm. After all this build-up throughout the rest of the story, a lot of it by us, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, no, we, we are the hype men, that's to yeah, be sure. exactly. The possibility of romance between Harry and Abby has, at least for the moment, come to a close. Uh-oh. It's the best kind of clothes one without drama or recrimination two adults making a decision to not continue to follow a certain path for reasons both of them understand and even agree with Mm. Abby is able to overcome her own emotional turmoil Not an easy thing, considering what she just had to go through regarding Annie and Frank. Mm. And finds a way to accept this compromise. Not a win, like she prefers. Not a loss, 
like losses big and small that she has had to face, she herself externalizes to us, the audience, that if she has to compromise, she wants to be able to do it on her terms and not someone else's. She hmm. wants the act of choosing to compromise. But this moment is perhaps a foundation to build up, because it is the choice she herself was on the verge of making, regardless of the fact that they will be friends and nothing more going forwards. I would argue that Abby needed to meet Harry, needed to go through this with her, in order to grow as a person. The loss of romance is in this way a gain for other parts of her, the same as it is for Harry. The same as Harry needed to meet Abby, needed to go through this with her in order to grow as a person. This is one of those few occasions in compromise where people win more than they lose. It is a sad moment, and it should feel that way, because it's the end of something that we were glad to see, even if there were good reasons to be apprehensive about it. Just because something as special as a sincere connection between two people who have so few opportunities to do so in an environment such as this is over, that doesn't mean that it can't end well, so to speak. Mm. This is about as sweet as you can manage this bitter moment to hit that oh-so-sought-after middle ground. We've talked about how Harry has gone on this journey of self-discovery and coming-of-age relationship stuff. First came Harry's self-acceptance and being able to identify her own sexuality through meeting other people whose own sexuality overlapped with her own. Then came her actually experiencing her first hookup, as well as the feelings that she had after that ecstatic first discovery. And she then was able to have an ongoing relationship, which then led her to reflect on the lifespan and future of that first connection and make her own conclusions about whether this was something she needed or wanted to continue. With that in mind, it's not just important, it's really vital that Harry is the one who explicitly vocalizes the breakup first. It feels like it's the culmination of her journey in many ways, at least in this regard, as well as further maturation on her part. Throughout Steamheart, Harry has been shown to have full agency and autonomy, and Closing it out on those same terms matches that affirming direction perfectly. I hadn't really thought about that necessarily. It's difficult not to associate racial connotations to it, especially since Harry's race definitely doesn't matter to Abigail. Mm. But then we start, of course, going into the sensitive topic of, oh, I don't see race. No, you should absolutely be aware of race mm. as a component of whatever it is that you do. Mm. Just don't be an asshole about it. Yeah, Abigail is able to find Harry absolutely remarkable, mm -hmm. seeing everything that she is without fetishizing any, any individual of component no, of that. No, she does not. Which is but... the balance to strike, like yeah. appreciating someone for all that they are without extrapolating one bit and imparting your own views of it. But the reason I bring up race is specifically mm -hmm. for the reasons that you already mentioned, but also adding on to that, it might be important that Harry makes this decision in order to give agency to people that might not otherwise have it. Right. And you, for you've heard many... about things like white woman feminism. So mm. therefore for white Abigail and black Harry to mm. enter into a relationship, but to have Harry be the one decide to end it mm. might be a good reflection of healthy dynamics rather mm. than the white woman in the relationship having some sort of superiority over mm. the minority in the relationship. 
Right. Maybe that's thinking too much about it. But on the other hand, hmm, as Alex pointed out recently, sometimes you need to think too much about these things. And also, like, in addition to not just beyond that, because they are their own things, as we've talked about, we have to take all of it on Mm -hmm. because that's who people are. They aren't just this one aspect of themselves. Mm -hmm. They are as a shadow the hedgehog song once eloquently and poetically put i am all of me Yes, I do still listen to that song, and no, I will not apologize for that. Not taking any questions at this time. (laughs) And no, I am not going to get Greg to close out this episode with that song. Um. (laughs) You don't own me. You can't control me. If I decide that I'm going to look up this song and put it on the end of the episode, then you're just going to have to like it, mister. Uh... Having listened to it, though, I decided to just play a snippet so that people would know what song he was talking about. That's edgy on the level of Batman's song from the Lego movie, and a little goes a long way. I had a point. It was a really eloquent one, and then Shadow the Hedgehog came and ruined everything, as he often does. Uh, (laughs) But, no, the point was that it's also very important that a woman who is on the spectrum with a neurodivergent background has the capacity to enact and exert her own agency. Recently, it has become very important, and I've noticed an instance where I felt like my own neurodivergent background as someone with dyspraxia did affect something that happened, and I did not feel like it was fully and adequately like taken on board and recognized by the people around me. Mm-hmm. And I shall leave it at that. The people who know me know exactly what this is, Mm-hmm. leaving it at that. But the characters and the team of Steamheart are aware of Harry's, uh, the way her mind works. And some of them maybe are too cautious about it. I think mm-hmm. that Frank can't help but sort of make allowances and be overly aware of it. Mm-hmm. Like, while still fully acknowledging her abilities as a mechanic, but when Annie has that conversation with Abigail she is perhaps not giving Harry as much credit for her own agency in this relationship as she maybe ought to. The conversation is more about like Abigail's own agency and control, and that is a worthwhile conversation to be had. So because maybe it's, I... because it's part of her character arc, right? Yes. Like, that's that's part of it. My point to bring it back is that it's important for many reasons mm-hmm. that Harry have just as much say over this mm. as abigail yeah I-, I want you to get to some of your final points mm. on this but yeah before we do just one more thought it's honestly a reflection of how much harry has been able to grow in a short time that it feels like she's far different from who she was back in arlington that mm-hmm. once she has been given room to grow, she makes leaps and bounds in doing so. That is Harry's journey. She continues to surprise all of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moving over from Harry and how this like represents progression and development for her, let's talk about Abigail's own progression and development because... In order to do that, I think I want to pay some attention to her final words, which I think are key. We sat together like that. And for the first time in a while, I liked who I was when I didn't get what I wanted. There's layers there, to be sure. She did want to propose this. So Harry not only reciprocating those feelings of it's the right time for this to reach a natural end, but also taking the weight off Abigail's shoulders by being the one to voice it first is as clean a breakup as you can get. But there's absolutely a feeling of both of them lamenting the loss of what they had and who they were when they were together. Even if this decision is being made to sort of 
preemptively avoid losing anything more and ensure the survival of their friendship and presence in each other's lives. We've talked repeatedly about Abigail pushing out against the borders that people around her place around her. Her resistance to people telling her what she would get, what would happen to her, regardless of anyone's wants, least of all hers. Her valuing of truth and living truthfully to oneself is something that she takes pride in. So it's not as if this trait is entirely negative. But hearing from her own mouth that she has a long-standing discomfort or apprehension of who she is when she doesn't get what she wants, it's telling. Mm -hmm. It's as if she's invested so much in being what people don't want her to be that she has rarely been able to decide for herself who she would want to be in a vacuum, much less refine and work on that version of herself. Getting to work through something with another person and come through the other side without regretting something she said or did is unfamiliar territory for her. And it's also the first time that she's been able to resolve a long-standing romantic connection to someone else without it ending tragically or getting tangled up and resentful at times. Tabitha is the only other person that she's been on good terms with post-romance, but all indications suggest that that was a one-night thing with a lot of, you know, affection remaining afterwards. But Yeah, I wouldn't even necessarily call that a romance. It mm. seems like, you know, two people that had rapport decided to hook up. Yeah. But it didn't necessarily feel like they went into this with any intent. Mm. being more than that it's yeah. not the same as what happens after harry and abigail mm. make love where mm. abigail says i want to pursue this and see where it goes yes there's there's a world of difference there mm. and just as it was good for harry to be able to begin experience and then end a relationship through her own agency it was fruitful for abigail to get through a compromise and a relationship in her life that didn't end up going south either through her own actions or someone else's it's a healing of the wound that happened with james and lucy yeah it's a proof of concept that something that like has not necessarily been vocalized because abigail hasn't really stayed away from physical or human connection with other people or like just sexual or like romantic whatever however you want to describe it the extent of physical contact with other people she hasn't shied away from that and she hasn't shied away from emotional connection she wasn't so traumatized by what happened with lucy that she has been put off the idea that she deserves to feel comparable feelings with another person. But it seems as if she's maybe never had the chance to have the proof of concepts that she is able to and deserves to be loved and to love someone and for that to be something that doesn't have to cost something. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that her next relationship will go swimmingly. Uh, that is just getting into so many things uh, that <laughs> I am going to uh, tap out. And... Tap out. Yep, we're tapping out. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I got that done in a little over two weeks instead of three or four, so I'm calling that a win. Next episode, we will close out with our discussion on Chapter 32, which will also bring us to the end of Part 3 of Steamheart, which means... I need to start writing some more outlines and getting Toby time to record. To close us out, I went backwards and forwards a lot on what music to end with. There were some love songs that could have worked, but they were sung by men, and I wanted something appropriate to Abby and Harry. So as it often does, let's bring it back to Emily Sailors and Amy Ray. Until next time, this is the Indigo Girls with Leaving.
Jet fuel and traffic lines Pulling up to the delta signs Distant shape of my hometown Black stain where the wheels touch down I pick up the morning news I pass the man who's never shined my shoes Through security into the train That will take me to the Is it? 